Good morning. My name is Jamie Borchick, and if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It'll be on page 671 of your house Bibles. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Over the next few months, we're going to be walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Galatians is the earliest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And this little letter has, a, has an importance that is far out of proportion with its size. So we're going to devote some significant time to digging into it and understanding it over these next few months. To fully understand it, though, we need to really understand the man behind it and the message that he preached. And so my goal this morning is to help us to do just that. To help us to understand Paul the man and his message, the gospel. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, for the rest of the message this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to take on the persona of Paul himself. I'll be speaking in the first person as if Paul were here addressing our church today, explaining his story and the situation in Galatia that prompted the writing of this letter. Now, before you set your expectations too high, Please know that there's a reason that I'm on this stage today and not one down in the theater district. So I'm not going to be an actor and I'm not going to put on a costume or anything. And I'm using an iPad, okay? So uh, I will be doing my best, though, to say what I think Paul would say to us today about, his, uh, about himself and his message. I'll be speaking as if Paul came to visit us in Chicago in the year 2018 and, and applied this letter to our context here. And while I won't be reading or citing any specific scripture throughout this message, what I'm going to say, everything I'm going to say, is going to be drawn from the letter to the Galatians and from the book of Acts, particularly chapters 13 and 14, where, uh, where, where Luke recounts the story of Paul's missionary journey through the region of Galatia. Okay, So if you want to follow along on that story, you can find it on page 636 in your house Bibles. And again, the goal this morning, as we begin, is that we would understand Paul the man and his message, the gospel. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word, for uh, the beautiful story that you've written. Thank you for the book of Acts, where we can see uh, the history of your church expanding and see how you uh, spread the good news of the gospel everywhere. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for the letter that he wrote us in the book of Galatians. I pray, God, that today you'd help us to understand what's going on here, that you'd frame this well for us, that we could get it, and that, that this letter would come to life for us over the next several months. 
pray you would speak, that you'd open our eyes to see you and understand you better today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I've only been in your city for for a little while, but already I've noticed something really strange about you all. As I've been out on the streets, I've seen a lot of people running for fun, like really long distances. Now, don't get me wrong. Back in my day, we had races and I saw people competing. In fact, uh, your Olympic games, your modern Olympics are actually based on uh, the ancient Olympics that were around even long before me. And so I saw people race. But 26.2 miles, that's a long way. And back in my day, marathon was a place, not an event. But if I'm, if I'm right, uh, in a couple weeks here, you've got a big event where a whole bunch of people are going to run a really, really long distance, right? Like a few centuries before me, the first guy who tried to do that, he, the story goes that, that he dropped dead when he finished. So it seems a little ridiculous to me that you all want to do that for fun. Okay, but I'm, I'm getting off track a little bit here. Um, I, I bring up running this morning because I think it, it gives a helpful analogy for what I want you to understand today. See, back at those uh, ancient Olympic games, back in the day, there were uh, great crowds would gather around to cheer on the runners as they ran. The, the race is the longest race in my day. was about three miles long. But runners, uh, fans, uh, family, friends, supporters would line the course route. And they'd cheer the runners on because even in that distance, people get tired. They're running hard. They're trying to get to the finish line and they, and they would get exhausted. And so having people lining the course saying, press on, keep going, run the race, finish strong. Man, it helped them to get going. It helped them to finish. And I can only imagine that in, in a race like your marathon today, how much more important that is and how much, how much easier it might be to want to quit mid-course when you're running so far. That desire to quit, it's kind of what was happening with my friends in Galatia. You see, my friends there, they started running this distance race of the Christian faith. But as they ran, some of their legs were getting heavy. And, and they heard from some of the people along the course route that there might be a shortcut. There might be another way. There might be another course they could take. Some of them were dropping out altogether. And that's why I wrote them a letter. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Let me back up. I didn't even introduce myself yet. Forgive me. My name is Saul. But you all can call me Paul. That's what I went by around my, my Gentile friends like you. You'll learn a lot more about me as you study my letter in the next few weeks. But let me give you some of the basics. I was born in the city of Tarsus. Tarsus uh, was in the region of Cilicia, which is in the southeastern part of the country that you all call Turkey today. My parents were devout Jews. 
And they kept the law of Moses, and they raised, raised me in strict allegiance to the law of Moses. I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, just as it prescribed. And then I was taught the law at home and at school from as far back as I can remember. And, and as a young boy, my family, they, they moved me from Tarsus down to Jerusalem, down in Palestine, so that I could study under the top rabbi of the day, so that I could go to the best school with Gamaliel as my teacher. He was an incredible teacher. I learned so much from him. I excelled in my studies, and I graduated at the top of my class. When it came to obedience to the law, man, I was varsity. I was the captain of the team. I was the valedictorian of my obedience class. I was a sharp dude. And that's why, that's why I hated those Christians. I was in my mid-20s, still finishing my training as a Pharisee, the strictest party of the Jewish religion. I was in my mid-20s when this Jesus guy showed up on the scene. I watched my teachers confront what I thought was his heretical teaching. I grew angry as sinners who didn't keep the law were seemingly given a free pass. This guy, this Jesus guy, he, he seemingly welcomed sinners into his life. Drunks and hookers, people with a past, people who had affairs and were divorced, people, tax collectors. What I saw from Jesus, man, it, it seemed like his focus was definitely not on keeping the law. And then, after all the hype around this guy, after he gathers this big crowd, after all that, he died. I mean, he claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then he died. And that was evidence enough for me that he, there was no possible way that he could be the Messiah. So the Messiah was supposed to rescue God's people, was supposed to, to, to restore us to world prominence. He was supposed to be our king and our leader. And a dead Messiah, as far as I was concerned, a dead Messiah was no Messiah at all. A dead guy couldn't be the savior of God's people. So that ruled Jesus out. I knew that some of Jesus' followers started saying that he'd come back from the dead. And look, as a, as a devout Jew, I knew that God could do whatever he wanted to do. The God who created the universe, he, he could raise somebody from the dead if he wanted to. But the idea that someone in real life, especially someone who is a criminal, who, who was executed by the state as a criminal like Jesus, the idea that somebody like that could die and then come back to life, it, it, it just seemed, it seemed nuts. It seemed crazy to me. I mean, maybe it seems nuts to some of you here today too. So when these Christians started saying that Jesus was alive and started welcoming sinners into their community, I had major problems with it. And I made it my mission in life 
to destroy this dubious sect. I went and I got authorization from the authorities to actually travel around the region and to go and arrest anyone I found who was following Jesus actively. I can't stress to you enough how much I despised Jesus and those who followed him. There were two things in my life that I was equally zealous about, equally passionate about. My personal, firm allegiance and commitment and obedience to God's law and my hatred for Jesus and his mission. And for that reason, I was a pretty unlikely candidate to become a follower of Jesus myself. And that's why what I'm going to tell you next it's so stinking crazy. It's still crazy to me that it happened. I was on one of my trips to arrest the followers of Jesus that I could find up in Damascus, up in Syria. And the craziest thing happened. This is going to sound crazy. I know it's going to sound crazy. But on the way, I met Jesus. He just appeared to me. I was on the road. I was, I was traveling. I was journeying up to Damascus. And, and there he was. There was a, a brilliant light. And, and I fell to my knees. I was, I was blinded. I couldn't see anything. In fact, I was blind for the next three days. And then I heard this voice. He said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And I, I, said, I guess I didn't really need to ask this, but, but I said, who are you, Lord? He said, it's Jesus. And I knew it was him. It was the one that I'd been going after. It was him talking to me, calling out to me. This, this was not a normal experience. It wasn't something I was looking for or expecting. I didn't know anyone who'd had an experience like that. For the next few days, I didn't eat or drink anything. And I, I didn't know how to think about it or, or what, I didn't have categories for this. All I knew at that moment was that Jesus was for real. I couldn't deny it. I couldn't deny what had happened to me. I met the resurrected Jesus and it completely changed my life. I, I know my story sounds crazy. In fact, I'd have a hard time believing it if it didn't happen to me. But I can't explain the transformation that happened in my life apart from it. So from that day forward... I belonged to him. I was his, all in. I was about 30 years old when all that happened. And really, over, over, for, for over a decade after that, for about 14 years after that, I kept a really low profile. I basically retreated from public life so that I could study and think through everything that had happened to me. 
I went back and I revisited the Old Testament scriptures that I knew so well in childhood. And I I reflected on what does this mean? How does Jesus fit into this story? And I, I just needed to get away to process this dramatic change that was happening in my life. So I'd occasionally participate in some public ministry things. But really, it wasn't until I was about 45 years old that I embarked on the work for which I'm so widely known today. I wasn't one of Jesus' disciples, but, but since I'd seen him after his resurrection, and since he'd given me this mission to go and, and proclaim his name to the world, because of that, uh, with the blessing and, and support of the church leaders in Jerusalem and in Antioch, my adopted home, at age 45, I was sent off as an apostle, a sent one, a missionary. The persecutor of the church had become the preacher of Jesus. Surprising to me. Maybe it's crazy to you. But for the rest of my life, my mission would be to proclaim the message of Jesus, to nurture new followers of Christ, and to plant and to build up churches. So I traveled thousands of miles, nearly all of them on foot, one step at a time. And I could tell you lots of stories from my travels. There were incredible moments when God showed up in just amazing ways. He did things that I could never have dreamed that he would do. It was amazing. But for today, I just want to tell you, I just want to tell you one of those stories. It's the story of my first missionary journey from when I was about 45 years old. You see, I've been part of this amazing, diverse, beautiful church in the city of Antioch in Syria for about a year. After my lengthy season of reflection, my friend Barnabas came and he brought me to Antioch to help teach some new believers there. Little did I know at the time when Barnabas brought me there how formative that time would be for my life. Much like your city of Chicago today, Antioch was a big, influential place. It had a population of over 500,000 people. It was the third largest city in the world behind Rome and Alexandria. And because of how cities were built back then, those 500,000 people were crammed inside of city walls. Antioch then was about as uh, population dense as a city like Mumbai, India is in your world today. But also, much like what I've heard of your city today, Antioch was also really segregated. There were walls around the city designed to keep invaders out, but there were also walls within the city to keep the wrong kinds of people out of certain neighborhoods. There were Greeks and Romans and Jews and Africans and others from all over the world who lived in the city. But as is so often the case in in the history of our world, those different groups didn't often mix. But when some of our brothers and sisters arrived in Antioch and they started preaching the good news about Jesus, people from all of those different groups, they started to get together. And then they all believed. People from every one of those different cultural and ethnic and religious backgrounds, some of them started to believe in Jesus. And they started to hang out together. They started to form a community They formed a church that reflected the holistic diversity of our city there in Antioch. 
In fact, four of the five people on our ministry team, on our leadership team there in the church, four of the five of us had Greek names. Two of us were Jews by birth. One was an African. And one was even part of the regional nobility. We had this diverse church that looked like the city around us. It was beautiful. And our divided city took notice. They saw what was going on. They saw people from these segregated groups regularly gathering together. And they really didn't know what to do with us or what to call us. They couldn't call us Jews because we weren't all Jews. And they couldn't call us Greeks because we weren't all Greeks. They couldn't call us Romans or Africans or anything else other because we weren't all any of any of those things. We defied their categories. And so they looked at us and they saw that the thing we had in common, the only thing we really had in common, it wasn't our ethnicity or our religious heritage or our nationality or our socioeconomic status. It wasn't any of those things. The only thing that we collectively had in common in that church was our allegiance to Jesus. He changed all of our lives. And he brought us all together from all those different backgrounds. And so the, the, the city there in Antioch, they gave us a new name. They started calling us Christians. Little Christs. It started off as a way for them to mock us, to ridicule us and poke fun at us. Hey, look at those people who are following Jesus. Man, we owned it. We realized that we were doing something right because we were imitating Christ. We were reaching every kind of person in the city. We thought that's exactly what Jesus would want us to do. We were called Christians because of the unusual and beautiful diversity of our community centered on Christ. And Christians became a name that we then gladly owned. After a year in Antioch with Barnabas, our friends there, they sent us off to reproduce what was happening in Antioch. With, with God's commission and with their empowering, they sent us off to be missionaries of this message of Jesus. We'd experienced his power to save people from all kinds of different backgrounds, and we went to preach that message and to recreate that experience all over the region. So it was on that first mission trip sent out by that church that we arrived in Galatia for the first time. Galatia is the area in Asia Minor that you know today as Turkey. It was originally a Celtic region. But by my day, Galatia had come under Roman rule and it had become home to a racially and culturally mixed population. There were some Jews in the region, but most of the residents were Gentiles. Racially and culturally diverse Gentiles. Around the year 47 AD, Barnabas and I arrived in this region. And our strategy was to start in the synagogues. Places that expected the coming of a Jewish savior. And places that shared our commitment and understanding of the scriptures. So in another city called Antioch, Antioch in Pisidia, we went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, on a Saturday. And because of our Jewish pedigrees, the leaders of the synagogue invited us to address the congregation. 
I stood up and spoke. And I started by telling the story of my people. The story of the Hebrew scriptures. The story of how God had chosen Israel to be his people and had rescued us from slavery in Egypt and brought us into the promised land in Canaan and raised up the great King David for us. This, everything I said, they expected. This was the story that they knew and loved. And with all the Jews in my day, they were eagerly awaiting the coming of the second David, the new king, the promised Messiah who would save God's people from their enemies. They were looking for the culmination of the story. So then, I did something they didn't expect. I shared, the great, I shared that the, the great culmination of the story had actually happened. I told them that from the offspring of King David, from his descendants, God had raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. For many of those in attendance that day, in that synagogue, this was the first time they'd ever heard the name of Jesus. I told them that Jesus had done no wrong, but had nonetheless been condemned to death. That he'd been executed on a cross and buried in a tomb. And then I told them about how God had raised him from the dead. Now for many days he appeared to people throughout Jerusalem. I told them boldly that through Jesus forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that by Jesus everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, no matter where you've come from or what your background is, everyone can be freed from everything that the law of Moses could never set you free from. In short, I told them that salvation comes not through doing good works or being a certain kind of person, but it comes through trusting Jesus Christ alone. Man, as we finished that meeting, you should have seen the place. You should have seen their reaction. They begged us to come back and, and, and speak with them again the next Sabbath. They wanted more. They were eager to hear. And sure enough, a week later, when we walked into that place, it was packed. In fact, almost the whole city showed up to hear us. They wanted to hear more about this good news that we were preaching. But sadly, many of the leaders of that synagogue, they took offense at all of this. You see, they, like me many years earlier, they had major problems with this message about Jesus. And they did whatever they could to try to stop us. This was the beginning of a, a pattern that I ended up seeing for the rest of my life. This message that I was preaching had a polarizing effect. For some, it was like seed sown on good soil. It sank deep into people's lives and it produced a rich harvest. But for others, the same message, it was received like a punch to the face, like an insult. They rejected it and they sometimes grew angry with me for preaching it. Whenever I'd preach this message of Jesus, I'd meet with both the warmth and hostility of some folks and with the and with the opposition of many others. 
I'd see enthusiasm and warmth and hostility and opposition. Everywhere we went, our message proved polarizing. Great numbers would believe and embrace the gospel freedom found in Christ alone, but many others would be hostile and would seek to destroy us in our message. And so from there, from Pisidian Antioch, we went on to the city of Iconium. And again in Iconium, we started in the Jewish synagogue and we saw a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. But again, unbelieving leaders stirred up opposition and they sought to stone us. The pattern continued and we went on to other cities. In Lystra, wow, Lystra. Lystra, I healed a crippled person, a crippled man, for the first time. This wasn't a, a usual kind of experience for me. But God's power was upon me in unusual ways back in those days. He backed up the message that I was preaching with these miraculous works. And so I looked at this man who had never taken a single step in his life. And I said, stand up. And he did. When the crowd saw it, they thought that Barnabas and me, they thought we were gods. They called Barnabas Zeus and they called me Hermes. Their religious leaders tried to perform this sacrifice to us. When we saw what was happening, we, we were horrified. So we ran out, we tore our clothes, and we said, Stop, brothers, we're men just like you. We're not gods. And we preached the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus to them, and we told them that they should turn from dead religion to the living God. And again, many believed, but many others came and tried to stop us. This time in Lystra, after healing this paralyzed man, this time, I actually got stoned. And I'm not talking about the, uh, the, the new uh, prescription uh, painkiller thing that, that's popular in your day. I'm not talking about that kind of getting stoned. I actually got pelted with real rocks. It wasn't all that fun. It's a painful experience. But that experience, it solidified for me this deep understanding of the realities of the Christian life. Anyone who's ever followed Jesus knows what this is like. There's opposition and trial all along the way. The race is not easy, and yet it's always worth it. And so to, to give others the opportunity to experience that joy, the joy of knowing Christ, of following him, that became the work of my life. So with great joy, despite great opposition, Barnabas and I, we journeyed back through the towns we'd visited in Galatia. And we headed back to Antioch, to our home base, a little over a year later. When we arrived back in Antioch, we told everyone all that God had done during our travels. We, we shared uh, about all these new believers from all kinds of different backgrounds. And there was so much to celebrate. But at this point, I bet you can figure out what happened next. More opposition. People came down from uh, Jerusalem opposing our message. These folks, they were, they were Christians. They had believed in Jesus, but 
They came down to Antioch saying that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You see, throughout history, my people had always believed that Gentiles could become a part of God's people, even though they weren't ethnically Jewish. That was the promise to Abraham generations earlier, that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Gentile men could become converts to Judaism by being circumcised and committing to obey God's law. Circumcision served as this permanent external marker of those who had made that commitment to God, to the God of Israel. Most of the earliest followers of Jesus were circumcised Jews or or circumcised converts to Judaism. There were people who already were or who had already become Jews and then believed in Jesus. But in Antioch, and then in our travels throughout Galatia, many of those who believed were not already circumcised. They weren't converts to Judaism. They were direct converts to Christ. And this raised the question, Does someone need to become Jewish in order to be right with God? If you've believed in Jesus, do you also need to then be circumcised and keep the law to be saved? Or is believing in Jesus enough? The people who came down to us from Judea were saying that faith in Christ is not enough. We called them Judaizers because they wanted to force Christians to become Jews too. They were saying that faith in Jesus might be how you start the race, but you're going to need a whole lot more than that to finish it. You need circumcision in the law too. You need faith and works. Their message was Jesus plus. My friends in Galatia had just started running the marathon of the Christian life. They were just a few laps into the race. And already they were facing this opposition in the form of these false teachers who were trying to get them off course. Some had already left the track altogether. And others were really close to doing the same. I couldn't return there in person because I was needed in Antioch and in Jerusalem to fight for the truth of the gospel. But I had to do something. So I wrote them a letter. It was the first major letter that I'd written in my career. And it was written to make abundantly clear that there is only one gospel. The gospel of Jesus alone. It is the gospel that through Jesus alone, forgiveness of sins is available to everyone everywhere. That anyone anywhere can believe in him and be freed from everything that you could never be freed from through your own obedience. It is the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. It's not advice. It's news. You see, the religions of the world in general, they do now and they always have, they've operated on the principle of advice. Advice is something you tell someone they should do to attain a desirable outcome. So brush your teeth so your breath don't stink. Uh, Wash your hands after you eat so you don't get sick. Right? The advice tells you things that you should do. It puts it on your performance, on you doing things to achieve the outcome. 
And in the world of religion, it's this idea that you perform to earn salvation. Performance equals salvation. How well you do translates into your standing with God. But this gospel that I preached, this gospel that I believed, it wasn't advice and it wasn't based on performance. This gospel that I preached, it was news. It was good news. And news is so different fundamentally from advice. News tells you things that have happened. tells you things that other people have done. So the, the Cubs won. The Bears lost. That's news. And at the center of the Christian faith, from the very beginning, has always been not advice, not performance, but news. What I wanted my friends in Galatia to know, and what I really want you to know today, is that what God wants from you is not your performance. He doesn't want you to do to make yourself right with him. He wants you to trust in what Jesus has done already on your behalf. He wants you not to trust in your own performance, but to trust in the performance of Jesus. The one who died and rose again to set you free. That was my message for my friends in Galatia. See, if you're a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian here today, what you need to know is that this is the central message of Christianity. It's the news about what Jesus did. The equation of the Christian life is not performance equals salvation. No, it's that faith in Jesus' performance equals salvation. Jesus offers you freedom from sin, freedom from the tyranny of your own performance. Freedom, he offers you a free relationship with God now and forever. So my encouragement to you today would be to believe this good news, to trust in him. And let me finish by addressing those of you who have already believed the good news. This good news I've been talking about, it's why I wrote my letter to the Galatians in the first place. You're going to hear lots more about it in the weeks to come. But the short of it is that Jesus had set them free. And I wanted them to remember that freedom. They'd started the race by faith. And I needed to remind them to keep running the race by faith. I want to encourage you this morning to do the same. In the race of faith, it's so easy to forget the gospel and to subtly start relying on your own performance instead. As you go through the race of faith, inevitably you're going to face people, false teachers who offer the rubbish of advice and performance instead of the treasure of good news and freedom. Don't listen to them for a second. Always remember That the gospel is not just the first step in the Christian race, but it's the whole thing. That's what my letter to the Galatians is all about. So press on, friends. Press on in the marathon of the Christian life. Keep going. Run the race with perseverance. Keep the faith. Stay the course. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the good work that you did in the Apostle Paul's life. We thank you for the good news through which you did it. 
for the good news of Jesus, of who he is, and of what he accomplished on the cross. We praise you for that truth today. And I pray, God, for those who are not yet in the race, who are maybe running on the treadmill of their own performance, that you would grant them the freedom that comes through knowing you and knowing Christ. And God, would you make us a gospel church, a church that is all about good news. Pray for those of us who are in the race, that we would stay the course. We would run with endurance and fight the good fight and someday finish the race running with faith in the one who did it all for us. We pray that in Jesus' name.